Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a conversation between two young performers who are just this week starting a huge tour together, Marcus King and Neil Francis. King is a blues rock prodigy who, at 26, already has a lifetime of music under his belt, both as leader of the Marcus King Band and, more recently, as a solo artist. Though he wasn't alive for the 1970s, King clearly has an affinity for that decade, with nods in his music to players like Hendrix and ZZ Top. He's earned a huge following over the years, which makes sense since he's been gigging since his teens. King's first solo disc, 2020's El Dorado, earned him a Grammy nomination, and for the brand new Young Blood, he once again hooked up with producer Dan Auerbach of The Black Keys. It's a scorcher. Check out a little bit of Hardworking Man from Young Blood. Francis is similarly enamored of 1970s sounds, though he leans more toward the funk and soul sides of things. Francis was in a band in his hometown of Chicago called The Herd, but graduated to more sophisticated sounds as a solo artist. Think Sly Stone, Elton John, and You're on the Right Track. His latest album for ATO Records is called In Plain Sight, and it was partly inspired by Francis's time living in a haunted church in Chicago. Check out a little bit of Problems from In Plain Sight right here. What both Marcus and Neil's records share is a little more seriousness than you might immediately hear in what sounds like party-friendly music. Both have had their bouts with substance issues and messy breakups, and those things make it into their songs. They're both also really interested in ghosts, as you'll hear. King isn't sure whether alcohol made him see a demon, but he's definitely seen one. They also talk about growing up bluesy, how David Lynch might translate into music, and the time-honored tradition of drawing dicks on dressing room walls. Enjoy. Hey man, how's your morning going? It's been a little hectic, dude. We just got a couple of kittens, so they're running around doing their thing. But they're cool. Zip is my boy. He's uh, my bud now, so he might be zipping around here in a minute. Zip and uh, what's the other one? Well, we're kind of tossing up between a few names. Fritter is the fan favorite right now, and the other name is Biscuit. That's my favorite. She's not got as much personality as Zip. She's got her own thing, but you know. You got to have a personality in this business. I keep telling you. Now. Where are you at today? You at home? Yeah, I'm in Chicago. Getting ready to fly to Colorado this evening. We're playing in Steamboat tomorrow. So Steamboat, Colorado. Out and back. You ever played up there? Yeah, I've been uh, 
been in some nooks and crayons of Colorado. <laughs> I imagine. We played a theater in Durango one time. That was fun. I saw a demon in the rafters. I swear. Really? Yeah, I used to see this demon around a lot. In what form? Was it just in Durango or is it in many places? I saw it the first time in Paris. It's just like this foreboding, like, horned creature that I'd see in all these strange places. Uh, Non-hallucinogenically inclined, just uh, would see it. I think it was a, later I found out it was like a byproduct of, like, bipolar disorder, untreated uh-huh. kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I'd see this demon around. We were playing in Durango, and it was like, in the rafters, I saw it. And I was like, oh, damn. Now, when you saw it, was it like as clearly as you could see Zip in the room? <laughs> or was it like a hazy apparition? So, more like a hazy apparition. Have you ever yeah. seen an apparition? I've had uh, experiences unexplained, uh, both recently and in altered states of consciousness. Right. I live in an apartment now on the south side, but I was living in this old church for a while. And there was like this one staircase in particular that always just made my hair stand on end. In my rental property I was in before I moved outside out of town here in Nashville was uh, it's like that. The only time I ever saw anything in that house was like after a few days of sleep deprivation. But, you know, saw like an old lady washing dishes. I mean, not actually washing the dishes. That would have been great. <laughs> Just like <laughs> at the sink. Ghost butler. Dude, like a helpful ghost. I think we're writing a show now. That's a show. <laughs> anyway, sorry to get us off on a weird start. I've had a weird morning. No, that's all good. That's a good enough place to start for me. Right on, man. I think the last time we saw you cats was at Lockin, that year where it rained cats and dogs. Yeah, but you guys made it for your set. Uh, the trio, at least. Yeah. Did your band set get rained out the next night? So the second night, yeah, it was us and then Tedeschi Trucks, and they got rained out. <laughs> so it actually turned out pretty cool. We were just all hunkered under this tent, hanging out for a while. You guys crushed it, as I remember, as you always do. Oh, thanks, man. That was totally ripping, man. I've never seen the trio before. We perform as a four-piece, and I like having a small ensemble because it kind of allows you to take a little more freedom with arrangements and take it on a ride, as it were. It seems like you were kind of seamlessly blending into, like, you just start a riff of something. I don't know how much you guys worked that shit out, but it was, like, it was really sick. It felt kind of like you were just crossfading shit into each other. And also just, like, just the fatness you guys had as a trio. It was badass. Yeah, I think a lot of that's attributed to chemistry. Yeah, um, absolutely. A lot of those quotes and um, just riffs, depending on how you're feeling that day, just riffs just kind of enter into your mind. And that freedom of a trio outfit kind of allows you to just go there because there's not really anybody playing the third (laughs) on anything. So you can go pretty much anywhere from there. It's like your bass player and your drummer know all the same shit that you know. You can kind of just throw anything in there. They got really big ears, too. They listen really well. And we're always just going into something kind of riffy. But now we're, we're a seven-piece now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we hired uh, Drew Smithers on playing rhythm and lead guitar. Um, we've been talking about playing together for like four years. So he just joined the group, and um, he's killing it, man. The band sounds massive. But we need that to follow you guys every night. I think it's going to be a blast. We just, we've been like really uh, hitting it this year. 
this is kind of new for us in the grand scheme of things because we were supposed to do this in 2020 where we were just playing a shitload, but uh, that had to wait for a little while, obviously. Oh, man, what happened? Everybody just felt like, you know, staying at home and reading a book. I took some time off. I didn't know. I quit watching the news and took some time off. Did anything really (laughs) crazy happen? I don't know. We went ghost hunting. You did? And uh, made a cartoon out of it featuring our dog. Well, I got to see that shit. Your experience with the demon reminded me of seven or eight years ago when I was, I used to drink a lot and... You know, I'd go cold turkey every now and then. And, you know, I guess they would call this uh, delirium tremens when you start seeing stuff. Yep. And that was the most insane hallucinations I've ever had in my life. Like more vivid than acid or mushrooms or anything. It was like I could watch a cartoon play itself out on a like wall. It wasn't fun at all. (laughs) Like uh, like acid or mushrooms. There was no good vibes to be found, but the uh, the demonic motif was strong, and uh, but yeah, I don't think I ever really saw anything, you know, in my right mind. Sleep deprivation seems to be like the heaviest thing that affects me these days, and that's that's quite frequent in our industry, as you know. Right, you may have just like blew my mind a little bit because every account that I have the first time being in Paris and I had like walking pneumonia Mm. but like pre-COVID like remember when we used to tour and even though you were sick everybody was like no you still got to do it yeah (laughs) but now you're like I got a sniffle and they're like you should probably quarantine for a month you know what I mean uh so you remember when we used to tour through everything else so I had pneumonia in Paris and I was sleeping on a couch and that's so I couldn't really drink because I was on like antibiotics and stuff I don't really drink as much as I used to, but I would go. That's the only way I know how to not drink is cold turkey. So it seems that every account that I have for this demon creature that I'd see seems that alcohol wasn't a factor. So it wasn't there, but perhaps correlated to the absence of alcohol is the presence of the demon. Yeah. Hence the name spirits. I think that's why uh, we do what we do. We're maybe more susceptible to that kind of stuff. Perhaps. Active imagination seems to be a common trait. Yeah. I was just listening to your, uh, I guess it's an EP you released. It said a single, but there are like four tracks that you released this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a live track on there from Chicago, actually. Sherry Berry. We did that at Buddy Guys. Oh, you played at Buddy's? Yeah, that was a trip. Man, I used to play there a lot. <laughs> they, uh, they really tried to educate me on the, you know, the way the blues scene really like markets themselves and like you got to sell t-shirts man like get out there and sell t-shirts i was like nah i'm good i don't want to i don't want to go out there and do that they were trying to get you to like go out to the merch table basically yeah which i did yeah but they they were just really trying to amp me up and i'm like i'm pretty reserved you guys are a lot more charismatic than me like you remember johnny that worked there did you ever cross paths with him yeah i think i know who you're talking about I mean, he's a great dude, but one of my biggest memories of playing there was uh, we were on our last tune of the set, and it was the most climactic moment of the set at the time. And I just mean that sonically, not that we were really crushing it. I don't mean it like that. <laughs> just sonically, it was pretty high, and um, my eyes are closed. I, my eyes are closed 
80% of the set. So all of a sudden I just hear like, ladies and gentlemen, the Marcus King band, give it up for him one more time, everybody. And I open my eyes and he's on stage, like basically telling us to get off the stage. And no I was shit. like, man, that's a weird way to, I think he was trying to help, but it, we didn't. When like was it. this? When did you play at Buddies? Oh man, this was probably around 2015, May 2016. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense to me then. Um, I played one of my first gigs at his old club, which was in the exact same corner, a block south. Okay. And it was like this beautiful little rundown, you know, wooden room. And there was yeah. a generator right under the stage that like caused everything on stage to just have massive interference. <laughs> so that was like the defining feature of any set was just this like, you know, hum going throughout everything and um i think i was 18 or 19 and i was playing there and i had this girl that i wanted to sneak up to the green room and i just like let her in through the street door and a security guard like saw me right away yeah and they almost didn't let me play the show they kicked her out and that was a bummer right i've been in some situations like that being underage and playing in clubs i started doing that when i was like uh 14 Mm-hmm. And I was 16 and I snuck into uh, the Christmas Jam pre-jam at the Orange Pill in Asheville. Mm-hmm. And uh, I staked the place out for a good hour in the cold December North Carolina weather. I was outside just trying to paint a picture. <laughs> I'm like outside. I'm watching, you know, trying to see who's entering this bottom stage door that doesn't have a laminate or a sticky and as soon as I'm thinking that, the catering truck pulls up, and it's all just regular dudes. I was like, me, I'm a regular guy. I'm going to go grab a tray of potatoes. And I went and grabbed, like, a big tray of food and just started, like, helping the crew out. And I got in there, but the fault in my plan was I didn't know the layout of the building. So I was in the basement, and that's, like, a separate little bar called Pulp. And uh, they got out to me pretty quick because I just kind of stopped helping <laughs> and just uh, – Got a ginger ale and just got to watching the set. And uh, Los Lobos was sitting right beside me. And I know those guys now, but at the time they were like, could you get out of the way? <laughs> and I was just in everybody's way. So, you know, they were on to me pretty quick. And the owner, who's now a friend of uh, the Orange Pill, um, he ended up just calling my dad. And my dad's like, he's not drinking. He's not there to drink. He's there to try to give his demo to somebody. Like, don't call but they blacklisted me from the orange peel. Really? And then we, and then we later, we played there. That's all. No harm. <laughs> but, you know, just being a punk kid. I mean, I, I really wasn't there to drink, though, which I think that saved my ass. Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata, 
and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. Do you remember in like 2012 or 2013 opening for the new master sounds in Greenville. Yeah, dude. I think that was the only time I met you prior to running into you at lock-in. Oh shit. Cause my band was like the third band on the bill, the herd. The herd. Yeah. Crazy man. Like it's funny how often that gig comes up in conversation and there had to been like 35 people there, but it's come up so many times. It's funny to me. I had no idea you were in the herd. Cause I remember that lineup. And I remember we backlined all our gear for the new Master Sounds, or I think you guys actually did, because we backlined in Oregon, and they were using y'all's gear because they don't travel with gear. Yeah. It's the whole, their whole bit. The owner of the club was a friend of mine, and then later I found out from Eddie that they never got paid for that show. And he's like, I'm going to have to have a word with that, that owner one day. I was like, well, he died. <laughs> he died. <laughs> How like, convenient. He, Alan was my, my bud, but like, he just partied and partied and partied. The doctor was like, don't do that. And he didn't listen. And he died like in his office chair in the club doing the numbers or whatever. No shit. So I was like, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to get that check, Eddie Roberts. <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Damn. But yeah, that just so much unfolded from that one night. I was on that tour. We were like with the new Master Sounds on our way to Swanee to play like Halloween or Bear Creek or something like that. And like the cat was definitely out of the bag on, you know, my drinking problem. And it was the sort of situation where like I wasn't supposed to be drinking, but I was like pretty much any <laughs> chance I could get. And I just remember you and I like going through the green room beers together, like on the back porch. Yeah. And that was like the last time I saw you. And then I was like, oh shit, Marcus is in Rolling Stone. <laughs> like uh, you know years later i'm in like fucking rehab just like oh man <laughs> oh man well shit dude i tell you what you're you're the cheese now man like even people on my team are like hey man neil francis is gonna be opening for you like that's not gonna happen very long i was like i know that shit <laughs> man i'm so excited so we're really happy to have you on the tour likewise everyone's so stoked for uh, this resurgence of Neil Francis, dude. I'm so happy to see it. You're crushing it, man. Anybody I bring you up to is just like hollering your praises. I'm super psyched that we're going to be playing the Aragon in Chicago because my dad used to be a roadie slash like security dude for uh, jam productions in the 70s. Oh, cool. And they were like the big promoter in town back then. You may have done a jam show. He used to work at the Aragon. and That's like the spot, right? Uh, like the Aragon is like 
Have you played there before or been there? Man, it's a pretty big place, right? Yeah, it's it's huge, man. So, like right next door to it, there's a little pizza place. That's where I played. And oh, right on. <laughs> there was 13 people there, and it was during the World Series. So I don't remember what year this was. This may have been like 2016 as well. But they didn't have a green room at the pizza place, so they let us use the green room in the Aragon. Mm-hmm. And it was a World Series, so you couldn't park anywhere. But this promoter we used that you may have known. You, you remember Paul Cook, promoter? Sounds familiar, but I don't know. Dude, he's passed away, but he was uh, he was an insane human being. And anybody that knows him knows what I'm talking about. And he drove an 05 Chevy Malibu in gold. And uh, the promoter came in and was like, hey, does anybody know this guy just parked in the alley, told me he was with Homeland Security. I was like, I don't know. He was like, he's driving a Chevy Malibu in 05. Like, yeah, I don't know who that is. And then Paul came in. Like, they had to have crossed paths with each other. Like, you can't park on the street anywhere in Chicago at this time. And he just, like, pulls up right in front of the building. It's like, Homeland Security, what's up? And, like, knowing his personality, he's so loud and just boisterous. What a character. But that's that's the only memory I have of that theater. So it's high time we get a new one. Yeah, you're going to like it, man. It's It was built in the 1920s has like a dance hall for, you know, big band. The interior is designed to look like the Alhambra Palace in Spain. Every surface is covered with mosaics and there's like this Spanish castle they constructed that's like the balcony. And there's like a, uh, one of those like night sky ceilings with like the twinkling stars. I love that. They don't build them like that anymore, obviously, but um, that place is probably haunted as fuck. (laughs) I'd have to imagine. Right. That's, it was reminding me of this place we played in uh, Buffalo, New York. And they took us on a ghost tour afterward. And, like, you go down in the basement and, like, there used to be, like, these tunnels and shit. And, like, they'd hide money there or whatever or booze during the Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. And Capone had, like, a, a standing, like, card game that he'd have down there. So, like, just wild stories and just wild energy. My, uh, my horn players were behind me and they both heard like a little girl laughing in the stairwell and uh that freaked us out pretty pretty good the venue owner told us that there was like a like a racist energy down there too and uh like he couldn't get anybody to come like work on the uh the plumbing because he said like like two dudes came and like left and like never said anything they just left because like this racist energy is down there just like fucking with people what do you think ghosts are What's your educated opinion or uneducated opinion? What's your gut? People say they could be trapped spirits in between this room and the next. I've also kind of subscribed to that idea that we're all just, as human beings, we're all a little bit uh, self-absorbed and we're all a little bit narcissistic to think that the spirit realm even wants to hang out with us. You know Mm. what I mean? (laughs) I just think maybe it's something we create in our minds to give us a little bit of a sense of not being alone, even if we are alone. But I don't know. I've been on a lot of ghost tours. So when you're on the road with me, we're hitting some ghost tours. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, we should do that. I love it. That's the day off activity, bro. Always. We played at this place in Luxembourg a few weeks ago that had been a monastery. It was it was built in like 1720. And it was a monastery for a while. Then it was like a prison. It was like the only prison in Luxembourg City. 
And then during World War II, Luxembourg was officially neutral, but Germany decided to just, they're like, we're using this prison for political prisoners. So it was a Nazi prison during the war. And then it went back to being like a Luxembourg state prison after that. And now it's like this really fancy arts center. It's like really beautiful what they've done with the space because it was like all these old stone vaults, like brick, like everything. It it must have looked like a dungeon because it was. But they like, you know, put all these, you know, modern finishes in there. Really nice. But you could kind of feel that dark energy. And, you know, after our set, the uh, Prince's Band, the new power generation was playing. Yeah. And they're like, you know, in this big plaza outside the prison playing. And it's like, oh, yeah, live from the uh, live from the prison. Damn. The new power generation. <laughs> it's like there's so much joy in this space now. It's it's kind of cool that they're like the people who were prisoners there could never have imagined something like that happening right outside the bars. Right. It's really weird. It's like sometimes I think about like when you're recording a tape and you erase what's on the tape, but you can kind of still hear the artifact of something. And maybe it's like what happens in reality creates such an impression that it leaves an artifact on like the space. And like when you're in a certain place, that's my uh, super heady explanation. I like it, man, because I don't I don't see it to be that far fetched. I think, you know, just thinking about sound as like a physical thing and it kind of sticks around like uh, there's people who have these auditory hallucinations as just like a. If you want to call it a disorder, I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing. But uh, like Michael League from Snarky Puppy has that, mm. where like sounds or colors. So he's like, he's like painting a masterpiece while he's playing. I mean, that's what I've heard secondhand. And I think it's really beautiful. But like that energy's out there, like it's going to stay. So I, I think, I don't think it's a very heady, or maybe I'm just kind of heady too, man. <laughs> I don't know. Last time we were in Luxembourg, they put us in a venue last minute that was way too big and not much of a crowd and it's like and sean paul was playing in the larger part of the venue the thing they said to like make us feel better was that sean paul's having a hard time filling the space as well i think it's just the economy it's like it's the economy got it it's the economy stupid yeah (laughs) but you know that feeling of like you always want to like be doing your best when you run into someone in your home from your hometown (laughs) And, like, I don't know, like, every other date on that tour, not to be a braggy dude, but, like, every other date, like, sold out or was close to sold out. And this show was just, like, way undersold in a venue that was too big our first time in Luxembourg. And front row, this girl was like, my guess I'm from Greenville. She's like, fuck. <laughs> no. No. This isn't the right place. Yeah, there was nobody there. <laughs> it was yeah. It was Winston bad. Marcus. <laughs> He's not doing great. <laughs> it's like taking a different stance when you know you're showing up to a dud. <laughs> right. I could kind of get nervous a lot if it's a sold out show because then I'm like, oh, shit. Well, now I really got to just, you know, I got to play a sold out show. I got to play like, you know, something that deserves this. And <laughs> if it's like if it's like a big ass room with 10 people there, I'm like, well, fuck it. Sometimes those turn into really good shows because we just don't give a fuck at all. Yeah. You know, just swinging for the fences, trying weird shit, you know? And that's our favorite thing to do. We we do that a lot on like, you know, gigs where we're not feeling the crowd. Mm-hmm. We're not really paying attention or whatever. We're like, all right, 30 minute mountain jam. 
coming out. <laughs> there you go. Because yeah. that's that's why we didn't really work. I feel like in the in the jam scene, quote unquote. Because I'm not gonna jam just for the sake of doing it. Like we, I like to jam if I feel it, and the crowd's really giving it to us, or like we feel good. We haven't just been up for six days. So like on any given night, like a three minute number could be like a 20 minute jam. You know, if it goes there, I want it to go there organically. But for me, I, I'm way more comfortable in front of a full house just because I've always kind of uh, saw it as like the bed of nail approach. Like you can lay on like 10,000 nails, but you take one away at a time. Like you're going to start to feel it more and more. Right. It's going to hurt. <laughs> but if there's like a, just like a sea of people. I feel like it's it's less of a face and it's like one organism I can kind of sing to rather than like having some lady I know from my hometown yelling at me. Right. <laughs> it's like easier to disassociate in that environment where there are like a shitload of people. I find it difficult to play hometown shows because there's like no matter how many people are there, like I'm always playing in front of like my ball busting cousins and shit. Ex-girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you never know, but... Like, they're probably not even there half the time. Just like, damn, they heard me, they heard me fuck up and... <laughs> they know. They always know. They know I suck. They always knew. <laughs> <laughs> You're never gonna make it. <laughs> You're in, like, a crowd of a thousand people. You're like, you, you never... We knew you were gonna shit the bed, Neil. <laughs> I had a dream two nights ago. Is I took I took two melatonin gummies mm-hmm. and smoked the joint. And I also ate some ice cream before bed, which is a no no. Dairy gives me crazy dreams. Mm. And so does melatonin and weed. So it's just all in one. The trifecta. It was great. But we were going into this club, shit load in, and they were like, So thirty eight tickets tonight, boys. <laughs> well, hopefully we can sell forty and then it turned into like this crazy like uh, afterlife prison type thing. My dreams get into like weird, just no plot line movies. Mm-hmm. But I woke up just in a cold sweat. It's such a recurring dream for me. It's just you guys suck. <laughs> I have like a very consistent dream where like most recently it kind of manifested like I was playing a recital like a formal classical piano recital, which I haven't done since I was like 12 years old. And like, (laughs) I'm about to go out on stage in front of like a room full of people. And I take a look at the program and it's like fucking Chopin and Beethoven. I'm like, I don't know any of this shit. (laughs) Just like fake it. Yeah. And uh, that's a consistent dream of mine. Do you ever, do you ever write your dreams down? Man, I tell my band, like on the bus, I'm like, I had this dream last night when I was, you know, doing this and this. I'm like, you got to write these down because that's really insane. And my dad was the same way. My dad said he used to dream like full feature length films in a dream. And I need to start writing them down. When I am in a practice of writing my dreams down, I end up having vivid dreams more consistently, or at least I remember them more consistently. I always think I'm going to like go back and reference them. And then I'm like, oh shit, this is just so weird. I don't even know what to think about this. We like David Lynch movies on the bus. Me too. So a lot of his cinema, most of his cinema is based off of like dreams and like that weird realm. And he's, he captures it so well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I wonder how that would translate to like music, you know? The only one that I've really watched more than once is Blue Velvet. 
And we love that one on the bus. We like Fire Walk With Me, uh, which is kind of like the prequel to Twin Peaks, the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mulholland Drives, a real good one. The whole scene, like with the uh, the operatic singer, it's like singing to like a tape in the that theater. Just that's a dream, dude. I feel like I've dreamt something similar to that. And like the the absence of sound that he's able to capture in his movies, I feel like is really dreamlike. Have you seen Holy Mountain? No. You should check that one out, man. It's uh by this. I think he's a Chilean filmmaker named Hodorowski. Okay. And uh, he actually had the rights to make Dune, the sci-fi novel. Yeah. He was going to make it into a movie in the 70s. And he had like Pink Floyd was like contracted to do the soundtrack. And Salvador Dali was going to be like the art director. What? It, it was like, um, actually, no, Salvador Dali was going to play the emperor and the art director was this guy, Mobius, who did all these insane... Uh, he did, like, the heavy metal comics and, like, uh, a bunch of other cool shit. But, like, there's a cool documentary about that film never being made. But there's also, like, a couple movies like uh, Holy Mountain and El Topo. I think El Topo was, like, John Lennon's favorite movie or George Harrison's favorite movie or something like that. It's, like, just super weird stream of consciousness like just out there psychedelic dream shit and like it's really beautifully shot dude i'm i'm into it man text those to me after the call i will that's the day off thing is ghost tours and movies love a movie super down we're playing like every single city in the united states <laughs> so <laughs> yeah some interesting shit to see yeah shit to see and some good food i started eating meat again during the pandemic so I haven't been back since and really looking forward to going back. Like there's this Philly or there's this cheesesteak place outside of town a little bit called Della Sandro's that our, our boy Peter Levin put us onto. And I would always just go and get uh, just peppers and onions and cheese. But looking forward to doing the real thing <laughs> next time we're there. Yeah. One of our first tours as Neil Francis was like early 2019. It was in the winter we were playing in Philly. We played at this place called Milk Boy on South Street that was like up three flights of stairs. And it was like this really fucked up, like 1800s staircase. Right. And they had like tables and chairs piled in there. And like right away, I was like, okay, so the organ is not coming up these stairs. <laughs> but we did yeah. carry the CP70 up these stairs. I was about to ask. CP70 is only a little less challenging. Dude, it was... I wouldn't make that same decision again because it was like, you know, putting our health at risk. We took a, a C3 and a Leslie up there one time because we were like, this is going to be the show. This is going to be it. It was like five people. Right. <laughs> they have that curtain that comes out open. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody there. And, <laughs> like, and that was before I was touring with a Hammond. But then we came back when I was doing the Neil Francis thing and they had... Oh, they're like, oh, we've like really improved the load in. It's like, it's way better now. And they had this like cherry picker thing that was like (laughs) on the exterior. And it was so sketchy. Like we had to put the organ like on its side and we ended up breaking the dolly for the organ. It was like the sketchiest thing imaginable. Just watching this thing like go up teetering. I've heard other tales of woe about that weird solution they got. But the best thing about that venue is all the all the shit puns 
on the green room wall. <laughs> yeah. Janice Plaplin. Uh, <laughs> a lot of great ones. Dude, uh, yeah, there's a great uh, High Noon in Madison has a great pun room as well. And then there used to be this place called Shuba's in Chicago. It's still there, but they like redid their green room. But prior to them redoing it, every single surface in the green room was like concert posters. And someone had like meticulously drawn dicks on like (laughs) every single figure, you know. It's part of the charm, man. Somebody spent a lot of time on that. Now it's just four beautifully bare walls with no dicks drawn on them, so... Well, we need to make a trip over there. Yeah, it's gonna be. <laughs> it's time. Yeah. We we played in uh, Toronto one time, and mm. it was really cold. So the salt on the side of the bus made it to where you could like write stuff. So the fans left us all these messages, and we were like, "Canadians are so nice," because all the messages were like, "Come back to Canada soon." Because if we were like. You know, right across the border in Buffalo, it'd be all dicks, all boobs, <laughs> like nothing sweet. People get a chance to draw on something. As Americans, we're like, dick, <laughs> this is my chance. Yeah, man. America's just trying to put its dick into everything, always. Yeah, good way to put it. Usually in the form of a missile. <laughs> yeah, old dick missile. It's going to be my new hotel alias, dick missile. Dick missile. Well, I'll be seeing you at the end of the month, I think, if that yeah, dude. ends up coming together. I'm, I'm hoping we can get together and uh, and work some tunes out for uh, some encore stuff. And get the CP70 back out and just rock out. Yeah, yeah, we got to talk about what kind of tunes we might want to do. Big time. But I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, man. Dude, it's been real fun talking to you. I, I hate it. This is our longest conversation since we got fucked up at IPA in Greenville. <laughs> But I'm glad we could do it for everyone else's pleasure, too. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, I guess uh, I'm going to wrangle these crazy-ass cats. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast. And thanks to Marcus King and Neil Francis for chatting. If you like what you heard, definitely follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform. And check out TalkHouse.com for tons of written pieces. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan. And the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time. <laughs>